brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, people. Another day, another deep dive into this strange world. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and we know quite well that our worldview very much drives our behavior. Whether you're a spiritualist, atheist, nihilist, alchemist, Christian, or otherwise, you will navigate reality much differently depending on your view of it. So what came first, the person or the idea? It's no surprise that ideas can spawn revolutions, collapse empires, or give a nation a collective sense of purpose, and the powers that be throughout history have invested heavily in the worldview management of various pockets of people over time, and investigating such threads can unravel into all sorts of interesting places. Well, today's guest Gary Lockman knows this as well as anyone, having written over 20 books, and many of them being about ideas, schools of thought, worldviews, and the people that have them. With biographies of unique minds such as Aleister Crowley, Rudolf Steiner, Carl Jung, Madame Blavatsky, Colin Wilson, and more. He's also written vastly on subjects such as the evolution of consciousness, the history of the occult, hermeticism, literary suicides, and the influence of esotericism on politics and society. But that's not all, folks. Gary also crafted an impressive music career, was a founding member of the pop group Blondie, and was even inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2006. What a life. His latest book tackles Russia's spiritual history, the philosophers, secret societies, and mystics that shaped it, and what the identity it's cultivated could mean for the future of this island Earth. It's called The Return of Holy Russia, Apocalyptic History, Mystical Awakening, and the Struggle for the Soul of the World, and I'm psyched to get into it. The Blondie bassist, mystic biographer, and literary legend of our time, Gary Lockman, welcome to The Higher Side. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, man, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm very intrigued by many of the unique minds you've written about. I also really loved The Return of Holy Russia. So often our knowledge of history and culture is segmented into East and West, and we struggle to even understand the goings-on in our own geographical bubble, let alone what goes on outside of it, which just makes this book even more impressive. But to get us started here, before we get into The Return of Holy Russia, because you have written close to two dozen books now, and there are definitely some common themes, to elaborate on what I tried to summarize with that intro, 
How would you describe the threads that weave through your work as a writer for the folks who haven't been initiated? Well, I think you nailed it. There's a couple of themes that I find myself coming back to. One is evolution of consciousness, and that's both in culture at large, civilization. You know, I go for these big, these big sort of projects, and in the individual. And books like The Secret History of Consciousness or The Secret Teachers of the Western World, The Quest for Hermes Trismegistos, which is about the mythical figure, the thrice greatest Hermes, who is the supposed founder of the Hermetic arts and philosophy and all that. I mean, all these deal in different ways with sort of consciousness and how it's manifested at different times in history, and also about the kind of what you want to call expanded or cosmic or hermetic consciousness, which is more or less a sort of mystical kind of consciousness that we only experience every now and then. And there's different people I've been interested in. I mean, you know, writing the books about Jung or P.D. Uspensky or Steiner, and it's been a way to sort of get to understand their their vision, their major players in this history of consciousness, and then basically to learn from them what I can and see how it all kind of fits together. I mean, I'm not working out a system, but this is kind of a fundamental kind of theme. And I think one of the things that I found myself that I'm doing, I didn't plan to do this, but over time it appeared to me that this is sort of a narrative that was going on, is about finding a way to bridge over the gap between the mainstream Western intellectual tradition, which I'm also very interested in, and this kind of shadow tradition or this alternative tradition of the Hermetic. Because at many places, they do overlap and they have informed each other. And they're also involved and engaged with some basic themes as well. And I think this all links up also with current developments in neuroscience about the rebooting of the whole right brain, left brain sort of story. So, yeah, I'm trying to find a way to bring these two streams, not necessarily together, but to see where they're both parts of the same enterprise, which is us. <laughs> Very cool. Huge undertaking and just a really impressive body of work covering a lot of great stuff. And that is excellent context to break people in on this latest book, The Return of Holy Russia. It is a fascinating subject because there have been a lot of unique characters and ideas that have come out of Russia that we've talked about many times in the past. Emmanuel Velikovsky, Madame Blavatsky, Rudolf Steiner, and Rasputin, just to name a few. So to look at the breeding ground for such people and ideas is interesting enough, but it seems like a lot of these esoteric ideas are resurging in Russia, and maybe they are here in the States too, to a degree, because there are a lot of parallels in your book, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump, and... I guess these two books, they do kind of go together, don't they? Well, yeah. I mean, I wrote quite a bit about Russia, contemporary Russia in Dark Star Rising because of overlap, a connection between this kind of occult politics that seemed to be happening around Trump. That was radiating out and connecting with similar sorts of things going on in Russia and in other parts of the world as well. And I originally considered this book to be a real carry-on from that, you know, okay, uh, uh, it was going to be, okay, there was a lot left about Russia that I could go to. And it was going to focus on a notion that I talk about in Dark Star Rising, about Eurasia. And Eurasia is this idea of Russia not being just a new nation, which it is now, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's the first time in its history that it hasn't been an empire, as far as I understand. But it's the beginning of this new civilization that's rising up in the 21st century. 
as the West goes under, there's this new Eurasian civilization that's going to rise up in the 21st century. And I toyed with the idea of the book focusing on that particularly, and I was going to call it Eurasia Dawn, but then I thought that sounded like an exotic dancer. <laughs> so uh, I decided not to go with that title. And then I also wrote quite a bit about that in Dark Star Rising. But it is connected to that because it, I said it carries on from what I was writing about Putin and people like Vladislav Surkov, who was his spin doctor and PR man in the 2000s and created this whole VR, virtual reality Russia, that 90% of the Russian population apparently accepted as reality, although it was all created for them. But the real prompt for this book particularly, and the notion of the return of Holy Russia, came from an article I read about Putin, I think it was 2015, at the annual meeting of Russia United, which is the main political party in Russia. He gave his regional governors a reading list. And on this reading list were these Russian philosophers from a period in Russian history before the Bolshevik Revolution known as the Silver Age that not too many people know about, but it was a remarkable flowering and efflorescence of art and literature and culture, and also interest in mysticism and spirituality and what we call the paranormal and the occult and things of that sort. And this was going on in Europe as well. I mean, in places like Paris and London as well. But it was particularly feverish and particularly intense in places like St. Petersburg. So I was that interested me that a world leader would be asking his regional governors to read these philosophers. But then I saw the response to this from the West, some of the Western commentators. And while, you know, I'm not trying to defend Putin in any way, I do think the people he was suggesting his regional governors to read deserve to be taken seriously. And I thought the response from the Western critics like David Brooks in the New York Times was rather kind of narrow-minded and simplistic and portraying people like Nikolai Berdyaev and Vladimir Soloviev, who are two of the philosophers from this time, the Silver Age, that Putin suggested his regional governors to read. You know, he was sort of diminishing them and seeing them as these, only as these sort of messianic, what we would call exceptionalist, sort of spiritual political thinkers, and promoting this kind of pan-Russian universalism, which in a way they are, but not in the way that he was portraying them as. So that interested me. And then it seemed to be part of this whole tactic or strategy or attempt Putin is making to reclaim this period, this pre-Bolshevik period, which was, it was powerfully creative and enormous. I mean, people like Stravinsky and the Rite of Spring came out of that, and, you know, uh, the Diaghilev, that's kind of like one little bit that, you know, many people might know, but there was a bigger, larger whole movement behind it. And because Russia's been going through this identity crisis, this is one of the things that happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, we, we're not Marxists anymore, we're not communists, and then the attempt to establish Western sort of free market, you know, values and democracy didn't really take and, and then went to his free fall. So I was just really interested. So what does it mean? Like, what's holy Russia? And so that's what I wound up doing in this book. I didn't start out to write a history of Russia, but I wound up doing it because I realized I didn't know anything about Russia. And uh, I just became fascinated learning about it as I wrote. Yeah, and that relates quite well to what I was going to bring up is that you mention in this book that Rudolf Steiner said that the Russian mind is exceedingly difficult to understand from the Western point of view. And that was a relief to read because then it's not just me. But talk to us about why this is. What makes our minds so different? Well, the central thing is the different stuff. Like the Western mind is logical, 
and linear and sequential and it's practical and it's all about science and understanding the world and all of that where not to say that doesn't go on in russia i I don't mean to suggest that at all but there is well there's a character that i talk about in the second chapter of the book called russian man and this was a theme that the german novelist Hermann hesse wrote in a short little book basically about the novels of dostoevsky who's the great russian novelist of the 19th century and russian man is this paradoxical contradictory character it's this huge capacious personality that can embrace opposites so you mentioned rasputin he's a good example although you know there's a lot of cliches about him but a book written about him he was the holy devil you know so you have the opposites there so russian man is a sinner and a saint he's a criminal and a poet you know he's a drunkard and a mystic he's judge and and victim and all, all these kinds of things at once and this turbulent protean kind of character was something that's radically different than the western idea and hesse portrays it as a kind of threat i mean hesse too is sort of writing well accepting the notion that europe is in decline i mean this was something that was a kind of common theme in the early 20th century i mean the big book is the decline of the west by oswald spengler and i talk about him too and what spengler and steiner and hesse they all see in this protean, you know, kind of turbulent Russian character, the possibility of a kind of cultural rebirth. I mean, Steiner talks about this new cultural epoch starting. I mean, the ETA for the real cultural epoch is maybe a millennia down the line, but he he sort of sees the beginnings of it appearing in the Russian soul. And again, Hesse too, Russian man, is this chaotic, turbulent individual, but it's like the prima materia in alchemy. You have to get down to this kind of matter that's not fully formed and then out of that something you know positive can appear and spengler too sees the west is going down but then russia is this you know new kind of thing and it's a totally different sensibility i mean spengler makes a difference he paints an easy uh, sort of metaphor and says if you think of the gothic cathedrals like chart or notre dame the spire reaching up into the sky reaching up to heavens that's the western eye the western ego you know this independent surging striving forward to the heavens and he says where the westerner looks up at the sky the russian looks out he looks out against the endless steps the endless horizon you know this vast plain and this is the eurasian continent this is the mother of all continents this endless kind of flat land and all that and this also creates a different kind of social sensibility so where the westerner thinks of me the russian thinks of we you know they have this notion of togetherness sobernost this kind of communal sort of sense. And hence, this is one reason why something like communism is easier to set in there than, say, in other places in the West. So, I mean, again, one of the things that's happened when I've done these interviews, and it's funny because it has been with sort of American interviewers, and I'm American myself, even though I've I've lived in London now for 25 years, but I'm unavoidably American. And Russia means USSR. I mean, it's almost like Germany is the Nazis. We've kind of outgrown that a bit because Germany's, you know, been nice and has done lots of good things. <laughs> the Russians, <laughs> Russians haven't really. I guess that's the thinking. I'm, I'm just saying. But still, that's the thing. I have to say. Well, yeah, you're right. You're right. But this, we're not talking about the USSR. We're talking about Russia. And Russia had this whole, you know, character. One of the reasons the USSR emerged is because of this contradictory and paradoxical character of Russia itself. 
you know, in the 19th century. Mm. Well, you're really good at writing about things uh, from neutral ground, uh, things that I guess make people pretty emotional. I'm not necessarily emotional about that sort of stuff. And variety is the spice of life. And to quote the book, when you do write about Russia today, you say, to think of Russia, home of gangland politics and ostentatious oligarchs, as more morally sensitive than the West may seem counterintuitive. But in Putin's Russia, the extreme liberalism and permissiveness that characterize Western society, its anything-goes sensibility, smacks of little more than decadence, and our commercialization of practically everything reeks of selfishness and ego gratification. Steiner's independent Western eye turned into a gluttonous consuming me. And I just think that's a pretty good summary there. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the argument. I mean, one, the thing today is that it's not a cold war between you know capitalism and communism anymore. What it is, it's this kind of clash of civilizations or a kind of moral standoff where you do have, from Putin's point of view, I mean, whether he accepts this in earnest or whether this is a political strategy, that's another question. But this is how, you know, the sort of the opposition is appearing. No, he sees the West, as I said, this kind of gluttonous me. It's what I call the me economy, where everything is available, everything's negotiable. I mean, everything is up for grabs. I mean, that was one of the themes of Dark Star Rising, where reality is completely malleable now. We've entered this phase where reality is up for grabs. Mm -hmm. Post-truth, alternative facts. You can do anything you want. And there's really no boundaries anymore in the West. There's really no resistance to someone wanting something, whether it's being recognized as another sex or gender or, you know, something else or whatever it is. It's just like there doesn't seem to be anything that's, you know, stopping this kind of, what do you want to call it? A kind of ultra-liberalism in the sense of laissez-faire economics where everything is part of the market. And again, you know, whether this is just strategy or whether he feels it's in earnest, uh, that's a different question. But Russia is presenting itself as this bearer of traditional values, you know, traditional family roles, traditional gender roles, you know, traditional religious ideas, traditional belief in sin and all these sorts of things. And yes, it seems counterproductive when the picture we have, as you said, of these ostentatious oligarchs and kind of gangster politics and all that. But that doesn't necessarily, they don't necessarily exclude each other. I mean, that's one of the things, you know. And again, I'm not promoting Putin or Russia or this kind of vision of traditional values. I'm just saying this is the opposition now. And it's kind of a moral stand-up. And he says this in quite you know, a few of his speeches. And this is one of the interesting things that I mentioned in Dark Star Rising, where there's the New York Times ran a story about Steve Bannon when he was still on Trump's team, where he gave a talk to a select group of very conservative churchmen at the Vatican. I think they're called the Committee on Human Dignity or something like that. And one of the things he's going on, the usual stuff he talks about was he started talking about Putin and he said he liked him, you know, he was wary of him, but he liked him because he stood for traditional values. And then he kind of links that or conflates that with traditionalism because he name checks uh, Evola in there. And then he also says there's someone in Putin's kind of circle who reads Evola, and this is this fellow Alexander Dugan, who I talk about in Dark Star Rising, and I talk about a little bit in, in Return of Holy Russia. He's been someone who's been promoting the Eurasia meme, or he was. I don't keep track. I don't know what he's doing now, but he was, up, you know, till the time when I was writing that book. So there's this connection between this kind of, you know, traditional hierarchical Holy Russia, you know, 
they're the third Rome um, after the collapse of the first Rome and then in 1453 Constantinople, which was the capital of the Eastern Empire, which carried on for a millennium, you know, more or less after the collapse of, you know, Rome in Italy, Rome. Then when that collapsed, by that time, Russia had converted to Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Orthodoxy, and it became the Russian Orthodox Church, and Moscow became the center of it, the Third Rome. So it has this whole history. I mean, in the West, in America, you know, there's the separation of church and state, or at least that's supposed to be the case. So it isn't quite, you know, you don't have this symbiosis. And at different times in Russian history, it was actually a theocracy, where either the metropolitan or the patriarch, you know, the head of the church was running things, or the czar himself was so taken, you know, with sort of creating a kind of monastic life throughout the whole country. I mean, Ivan the Terrible is one example of this. So the religion and state was something much more closer there, and it's much more close to the Russian identity, too. I mean, again, in the States, it's kind of freedom of religion, so you can be different religions, you can be, you know, whatever, different sorts of things, whereas it wasn't quite like that in Russia. It was very much, you were Russian, and you were Russian Orthodox, you know. And, you know, obviously they had their pagan culture and all that, and I talk about that blending in there, too. So it's this kind of connection between these two things that in the West we don't quite get. It seems like something that, you know, maybe that was like that a long time ago, but it's not like that in the modern world. Yeah, it's really interesting how our environment does influence us. Because if you were to ask me, I wouldn't be all that concerned with the shape of, say, American man or the American mindset, because I think I live in the counterculture. Yet, if I travel the world, I bet I come across as quite stereotypically American. And it's just funny how that works out, because it does have an effect whether you really want to acknowledge it or not. And Americans definitely know the liberal, conservative, tug of war very well. And mm. every perspective is going to have its pros and cons. So it's good to look at it. Any worldview or any philosophy can go off the rails or be used in, in ways that we don't like and has an ugly side. But I like to look at these things pretty objectively. And one of the big themes in this book is that there is a collective purpose or destiny for Russia. That's kind of why it's important to get this context. Steiner talked about this saying that the fifth epoch of post-Atlantean consciousness evolution was developing the individual eye or the ego. And thanks, America, for carrying that torch. But the sixth epoch would be of empathy and feeling the pain of others as our own. And that you could already see glimmers of this in the Russian people, like you mentioned. Even Edgar Cayce prophesied that on Russia's religious development will come the great hope of the world. And there are even more intuitions and prophecies that you write about that have this same shape. And I guess I would ask, do you see these prophecies coming to light? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I see them as certainly being more in the air and atmosphere around Russia these days. As far as I'm aware of it, you know, I'm not there. I haven't been there. I don't speak Russian. So I, you know, I just pick it up from what I can gather on the internet, basically, and doing research. But see, this was Another reason I was fascinated that Putin was referring back to these philosophers from the Silver Age, because, as you say, Steiner and others, and people like Alice Bailey, and finally Walter Schubart, who is a German philosopher who wrote Russia, Russia and the West, or something like that. And again, it was this idea that, well, the destiny Russia was supposed to fulfill before the Bolsheviks came was it was going to be this 
way of combining the best of the West and the best of the East together to create something that was more than either of those, was, you know, bigger than those. If you know Hegel's ideas of thesis and antithesis, then they get together and they make synthesis. So this was supposed to be something that Russia in the whole geopolitical world and this world historical context was supposed to bring about. And this was the great hope that Hesse and Steiner and others saw. And again, this is before the Bolsheviks. You have to remember, you know, Marxism was Western. Marxism did not come out of Russia. And Russia was the last place where Marx had expected the revolution to happen. It was supposed to happen in Germany, which was the most industrialized nation in Europe at the time. And it happened in medieval Russia, you know, which was back in, in, in the Middle Ages with these millions and millions of serfs. And it's kind of, you know, very, very backward compared to the West, you know, standard living and civilization. So the Bolsheviks were a completely Western import. And, you know, the whole story where Germany weaponized Lenin, you know, during World War I, when Russia was involved in World War One, and it had soldiers, millions of them, and that was about it. <laughs> you know, they, they often went into battle with, you know, just rifles with bayonets and no bullets. Often they didn't even have the rifles. They just kept throwing. And, you know, there's all the turmoil around and all that and Rasputin and all this kind of thing. And if you know, you know, your Nicholas and Alexandra story, the last days of the Romanovs, it's this fantastic historical drama. But then, you know, Lenin has been exiled from Russia because of his political activities. And then he's weaponized by the Kaiser because the Kaiser knows that if he sends him back to Russia, he'll create all this turmoil. He'll destabilize the situation. And that's precisely what happens. And he comes out of this school of 19th century revolutionaries. The earliest manifestation of them was a group called the New Men, who were ruthlessly practical about, you know, taking over the government in order to create this new, more equitable society and so on and so on. Yeah, they had wonderful aims, but the means they employed to achieve those ends often, you know, sort of nullified them. But in any case, so it was ruthless, a group of crack revolutionary, the revolutionary lead who would take control, do whatever was necessary to take control, and then guide the populace. Uh, slowly and safely towards this, you know, new class of society, which never came into existence. But this is completely Western import. So the thing was, it took there because Russia was going to explode in one way or another anyway, because the whole 19th century was, it was like what was happening in Russia because of the serfs and all these other forms of inequality had created this thing that was boiling over. And most of the czars, what they did was try to keep the lid on tighter, you know, and Oddly enough, the one who did try to change things, who did have some progressive views and did free the serfs, Alexander II, he was assassinated. So explosion was going to happen there, and you know Lenin happened to be the match, but then they took over. Mm-hmm. Great context. And yes, it seems like Russia obviously had a bloody changing of the guard, but before that was this Silver Age that you've mentioned. And the book you wrote covers more of the depth and complexity of Russian history than I'd ever read before. But the major focus is this Silver Age of 1890 to 1920. As you say, a time of magic and mysticism. And this is the age of Steiner and Blavatsky and a very fertile time for esoteric philosophy in Russia. And you say that one of the major points of the book is that even 100 years later, we still have a lot to learn from these people. Outside of predictions of Russia's destiny, what are some of the things that the sages of the Silver Age emphasized that you think we'd be wise to reconsider today? 
Well, one of the points I try to make towards the end of the book is this kind of rapprochement between East and West is still something that's needed, but not necessarily in a geopolitical sense. But that was one manifestation of it. But the other that was more inner was the whole approach of Russian philosophy. And basically what I try to say in the book is what these, I mean, Russian philosophy doesn't really start until the late 19th century. You have social thinkers, you have moralists and political thinkers, but the sense of Russian philosophy in, in the way that we kind of understand philosophy, you know, metaphysics and ontology and things of that sort, that gets going with this fellow Vladimir Soloviev in the late 19th century. And his main thrust is that there's a crisis in Western philosophy, which was being recognized by Western philosophers as well. And simply put, the crisis was that it was increasingly becoming materialistic and not necessarily in the economic way we are, but that itself is a byproduct of this philosophical materialism. Basically, the only really real thing in existence is matter or physical forces and energy the notions of spirit or soul, the inner world. These are just kind of confusions of language, let's say, or superstitions from the past. And once we understand that the brain is the brain and there's no such thing as the mind or the soul or something like that, we'll be able to, well, fundamentally take control of this matter and create a better world. I mean, and in one weird sense, both Lenin or the new men, these radical revolutionaries from the 1870s that Dostoevsky writes about in his novel, The Devils. And the kind of Western view of the psyche were very similar. They're both kind of based on John Locke, the notion that there's nothing in the mind that doesn't get there through the senses. So we're all kind of born like empty flats, you know, and we have to go to Ikea and buy a lot of stuff and we come back and we can fill up our flat and then we have a furnished flat. And the equivalent of Ikea for the human psyche is all the stuff coming in from the senses. So there's no soul. It's like, you know, we're empty. We're blank. We're tabula rasa, as John Locke said. You know, it's all nurture. If you create the proper environment, you can write on that blank slate whatever you want. And Solovyev and before him or alongside of him, Dostoevsky, because they were friends, and other great, you know, Russian writers and poets before that, no, they were, that, they were saying, no, no, there is the soul. That's why the subtitle is The Struggle for the Soul of the World. And this is another reason why when Russian literature explodes in the West, and I mean, you know, people like Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and others, they have this passionate, this intensity about these fundamental kind of questions about the soul and the meaning of life and all of that. There's a story that Nikolai Berdyaev, who's one of these philosophers from the Silver Age, tells how there are a group of, you know, poets and writers hanging out at a cafe. It's four o'clock in the morning and the cafe owner wants to close and they say, we can't close. We haven't decided whether God exists or not. <laughs> and they have, they have to carry on. I mean, they were really... <laughs> excited about these kinds of things in a way that by the time they came over to the West, it was overpowering. The great Western writers weren't, if you look like Flaubert or Dostoevsky, I mean, Flaubert is a great writer, wonderful style and all that, but he doesn't have kind of, he looks at things from a distance, you know, he's kind of observing his characters like as if they're under a you know, microscope. But Dostoevsky, you can just feel him, you know, he's engaged with every too much. He seems hysterical at times, but there's an overflowing passion in all that. And that's another difference where the Russian wants his art to save him. Art has to have a salvific character to it. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the West, in the West, it has to satisfy us. You know, we have an aesthetic experience from it, but we don't really expect it to perform this kind of religious or spiritual transformation, which in Russia they did because one of their first 
along with the introduction of Greek Orthodox Christianity, was or a means of introducing it were the icons. You know, these fantastic, translucent, brightly glittering paintings of Jesus and Mary and the saints and things of that sort. They're called Windows on Another World. Flamensky, Sergei Flamensky is one of the people I write about. And there was a whole idea that art is transformative. You know, it's, it, it performs a spiritual kind of function. And if it doesn't do that, then it's just glitter. Right. And you have famous writers like Nikolai Gogol and Tolstoy towards the end of their careers rejecting their art and throwing themselves into this religious life and all that. Yeah, the way we look at art is definitely something I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about. And we have had previous guests who have talked about this with the American identity, that when the New Atlantis was being formed, the Rosicrucians, these people who do have uh, an affinity for depth and, and spirituality, they recognized that this new nation didn't have much of an identity, that it was very shallow. And Court Lindahl is a guest I've had who has looked back at certain writers at the time, Sir Francis Bacon, even mm. looping in Edgar Allan Poe mm. and saying that when you look at these guys, you can see that they actually were connected to writers guilds that were seeded from people like the Rosicrucians. And the goal was to create art and literature or these esoteric mysteries within America to kind of seed this identity and culture, trying to like maybe backcast it or make up for lost time because they saw the importance of an identity amongst a people. And that was kind of the first time I thought of it as, uh, as all that important, but hmm. it's coming up again. So it does seem really interesting, especially when you factor in that a lot of it has roots in secret societies, which is just provocative to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly. Well, I mean, in America, I, I think you have people like Emerson, the transcendentalists and all that, and the push is towards this, it's the new world, you know. Um, he taps into Eastern metaphysics and hermeticism, and other people around the transcendentalists uh, did as well. And yeah, absolutely right, they knew about the Rosicrucians and all that sort of thing. But this kind of vision of leaving the old world behind and, you know, open frontier, you know, this kind of new dawns ahead of us. And Nietzsche says there are so many new dawns, you know, waiting to happen. But that comes in at a later date in the Russian history. And again, you have to remember, you know, talking about America, it's what, 200 something, you know, a little bit more years old. I mean, again, people think about Russia, they think the Soviet Union, which lasted 70 years. Russia itself is a good millennium old. So, and again, that's considered a young country when you look at other places. Here I am, England goes back and so on and so on. But they later had this whole vision of the future. Well, around the same time as the Silver Age or just after it, you have these very progressive future-oriented characters known as the Cosmists, who had these fantastic ideas. You know, Fedorovich uh, Fedorov was this remarkable character who Dostoevsky knew and Soloviev knew as well, who had this incredible idea that what he called the common task, you know, the one main initiative that could unite all humanity would be the reviving of the dead. And he meant this literally, not in a spiritual sense. And this was an argument he got into with Soloviev, because he, he also believed in resurrection, but he was thinking, well, isn't it a spiritual resurrection? And Fedorov said, no, it's actually, we have to, he didn't know how it was going to happen, but he knew it would happen. And somehow we would collect all of the dust that all of the bodies that have died in the past have turned into. 
and reform them into the bodies they had, and then we could re revive them. And then because we'd have all these people, we have to have a place to put them. And then that meant we would have to go out into space. And this weird idea about literally reviving the dead led to, well, it basically laid the roots of the Russian space program because one of Federov's students, well, this fellow who sat at his feet for a while, later went on to do the whole rocket science that would lead to the Russian space program. So it's like mm. very, really strange kind of thing there. But even that whole thing there, I mean, all these, the cosmos, these other ones, they all have connection to sort of occult, mystical, very, very strange ideas. We certainly would think they're strange in the West, but they seem to be very open, you know, to them to a greater degree than the Russian psyche. I mean, and everybody knows all the stories about the, you know, the Soviet interest in psychic warfare and remote viewing and doing the same kinds of things that the U.S. was doing and all that. I mean, I tell stories about that in the book as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you are right that the world or humanity has a lot of spiritual repair to do. <laughs> Thanks, empires. And let's talk about that space program a little more, because that was a question I had for you on this long list. And it was kind of regarding James Bruce, who seemed like a really interesting oh, character, right. uh, Russian's first astronomer. And he had a lot of crazy esoteric interests. And it just makes me think about how steeped in the occult the birth of America's rocketry program was with Jack Parsons and all that. Yep. There's a lot of real parallels to Russia's space program. And I just find that so weird. What is it about these two subject matters that seem quite different that, that also it seems in reality are quite intertwined? Tell us a little bit about Russia's space program and the esotericism in it that Americans might not be aware of. Well, I mean, you're going to say people that are interested in outer space or out of this world, you could say, and so are the, you know, so are the people that are interested in the occult ideas. Well, I mean, you talk about James Bruce. I mean, he was someone who was a friend of Peter the Great. And again, Peter the Great, he's the great westernizer of Russia. And there's some debate whether he was initiated into Freemasonry or not, but he certainly was interested in it. And at the time, I mean, Freemasonry to us seems like so it's one of these strange old boys kind of secret society. But at the time, it was one of the means through which modern ideas spread. Modern social ideas, egalitarianism, things of that sort, but also other sorts of ideas. But I mean, you have, you know, the fellow I was talking about who was kind of sitting at the feet of Fedorov is a fellow named Konstantin Silikovsky. And the idea that Fedorov had that we would have to go out and to find habitable planets out in space in order to house all of the revived dead, which strikes us as just a mad kind of idea. <laughs> but he was sort of inspired by that to actually figure out, well, how could we actually do that? And he's the one who actually developed, you know, the science and the math to be able to figure out the rocket thrusts and so on and so on. And his ideas were, you know, absorbed into the sort of Russian later on the space program by the time of the 50s and all that. I mean, he started work before the revolution and then, you know, he was absorbed into it and things of that sort. And these, a lot of these people were put out in the sticks. There was a place called Kaluga where there was, he was sent to and others were sent out there. And then there was a whole kind of community of scientists and visionaries that gathered around there. And now it's a place of pilgrimage and now there's a museum to him and to Fedorov and all of those. And all these ideas have come back and there was a lot of interest in the early 
20th century, around the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, in the effect of sort of planetary forces on the Earth. This fellow named Vernadsky, he's one of the ones who was first talking about what we call the biosphere and then the newosphere, in the sense that we know that mostly through Teo de Chardin, but actually Teo de Chardin sat in on some of Vernadsky's uh, lectures. And it's unclear, you know, who actually coined the term first. Uh, actually, it was another fellow whose name escapes me now, who apparently was the one who actually first coined it. But Vernadsky sort of took it on. And as should say, there was a real interest in the notion of viewing humanity, unlike the West saw us, as some chance occurrence in this meaningless chance universe. And, you know, life just happened by chance. And then human beings with consciousness just happened by chance through, you know, Darwinian evolution, survival of the fittest and chance mutations and so on and so on. But they tended to see humanity as another sort of expression of the earth itself, just as trees are and the oceans were and that kind of thing. And this was an idea that if you know your Gurdjieff, if you know In Search of the Miraculous, which is P.D. Uspensky's account of his years with Gurdjieff, during you know World War One and the Russian Revolution and then the Russian Civil War, and incidentally, it's sort of the the book most people go to when they want to get a clear idea of what Gurdjieff's ideas were about. The story behind that is this adventure that Uspensky and Gurdjieff and these others were on, with the backdrop of a collapsing Russia, Russia falling apart, in so many ways. <laughs> Their sort of story itself is a kind of microcosm of the whole history of Russia, I would say, because you have this kind of spiritual adventure against this turbulent backdrop of, you know, collapse and chaos and catastrophe and all that. But one of the things that Gurdjieff tells Uspensky in this book is how the planets and the sun and the moon affect human affairs and how if the planets get too close together or something like that, then what happens on the earth is wars break out or rather you know, massive social events, and the moon is feeding off the souls of human beings. And if we, well, Gurdjieff said we're all food for the moon, meaning that if we don't work to wake up, you know, his idea was that we're all asleep and we have to go through a series of very difficult psychological processes in order to gain true wakefulness. If we don't do that, then we're just giving off all our emanations up to the moon and all that. So, I mean, whether you take that literally or not is another story. But Vernadsky certainly took it seriously that there were cosmic influences influencing events on the Earth. And there were other scientists, uh, Chezhevsky was another one who actually studied solar sunspots and went through sunspot cycles. And he had a whole theory about how the sunspots affect human affairs. And he mapped out, you know, when there was a high level of sunspot activity, you know, wars broke out or revolutions happened, or things of that sort. And there's something about, there's a very strong sensibility in the Russian psyche. And I think this goes back to this notion of the we rather than the me, where it's really interested in sort of seeing humanity as a whole as something that's not exceptional to the whole cosmos, but part and parcel of it and, you know, caught in its weave inescapably. And the whole idea, this notion of the free will that the West likes, I can choose to do this or choose to do that, is something that's in many ways antithetical to the Russian mind. It's not about me, it's not about what you choose, it's about us, it's about how we all work together, and we're all part of this great system and all that. But he got in trouble, he got in trouble with Stalin 
you know, even though Krzyzewski's ideas were you know, celebrated and taken very seriously, and he did a lot of work on ozone, the ozone in the air affects human behavior. And the sunspots are supposed to be somehow related to ions, the ionization, that's how it is, the ionization in the air, negative ions somehow. The sunspot activity increases negative ions in the atmosphere, and that makes us all kind of jittery and kind of anxious, and we want to do something. Right. Right. <laughs> and so we go have a war or a revolution or something like that. But in any case, Stalin figured out, like, well, hold on. You're saying the sunspots created the revolution, not, <laughs> not uh, you know, uh, you know, the or hard you know, work. Well, not, you know, not the unstoppable march of Marxist scientific dialectical history, whatever it is. And so he said, you have to recant. And he didn't. And he wound up, you know, getting his hands slapped and all that kind of stuff. Again, it's very, very different than, you know, we like this idea. It just seems like a new idea to us now because it seems like it's part of the very eco-friendly way we should see the world. And that's one of the reasons why I say there's a lot of ideas from this time that parallel a lot of ideas that the new age or, you know, alternative culture, whatever you want to call it, seem very interested in. And this is something that the Esalen Institute up the coast from you were interested in back in the late 80s and 90s, because they were involved in the whole kind of exchange program with people in Russia. And they discovered that, well, they said, if you scratch a Russian, you find a mystic. They found that, you know, they had all the weirdos going to them at the Esalen Institute, which is this wonderful place, the spiritual retreat in, in Big Sur. I was just there last year. It's a fantastic place. Mm -hmm. And all the weirdos used to go there, you know, siphoned off from the main culture. But he said in Russia that most everybody, you know, the people that came to us specifically were the kind of people we bumped into all the time there. So there's this whole kind of openness to these sort of alternative ideas that is not, again, there's more people interested in them in the West now than there ever was, but it's still something that the mainstream just thinks is just kind of rubbish. <laughs> yes, yes. Hey, alternative ideas are my bread and butter. And uh, I really did love that part of the book and just those ideas about cosmic forces influencing the earth, sunspot activity, jiving with the ebbs and flows of war. And even Alexander Humboldt gets a mention in that little section of your book, which if that's the same Alexander Humboldt I know, I mean, he was one who propagated a lot of the hollow earth stuff, which is another big interest of mine and pops up in the worldviews of some of these figures that you've written about here and there. Um, do I mention him? I actually have to open the book now. You mentioned Alexander Humboldt, but I don't, I know him as Alexander Von Humboldt, which I think is, it's probably the same guy. You know what? He doesn't make it to the index. So it must have just been a name drop. Um, <laughs> I think it was, but I grabbed onto it for dear life because it's a Hollow Earth reference, potentially. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, all of those, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I talk about the Hollow Earth per se in the book. But again, you talked about these ideas becoming very popular again. And that's precisely what happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, once the Bolsheviks came to power, all this kind of stuff eventually was just verboten. I know I'm mixing my languages. But, you know, yet. And so we don't want any of that. Although underground, both in the Soviet power structure itself and the people, it was kind of still going on in different ways. In the late 50s, early 60s, there was the Khrushchev thaw after Stalin died, and then there was a loosening up. And there was kind of a flowering in the 60s of likewise going on in the West, muted, not in the exact you know, kind of flamboyant way, but still interest in these kinds of things and in books like the Morning of the Magicians, you know, this fantastic book by uh, Powell's and Berger that kick-started the occult revival of the 1960s. It was published in Paris in 1960, and then it became this big bestseller. And then, you know, by mid-decade, the, the occult and the mystical was the most popular thing in the world. 
Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when Brezhnev came to power, all that crushed. But then, you know, with Perestroika and all that, it opened up again. And certainly with the fall of the Soviet Union, all the stuff that had been banned was available again. You had this fantastic resurgence of all these kind of ideas, the cosmists, people you're talking about, the Silver Age people, Steiner, Blavatsky, Nicholas Rohrick, who's another you know figure from the Silver Age, who's this fantastic Russian painter, mystic, also explorer. And he, in the 1920s, well, 1920s and 30s, he tried twice to establish a pan-Buddhist nation in the heart of Inner Mongolia. He tried to get the Bolsheviks interested the first time in the 20s and then in the 30s. He actually had U.S. backing. And, you know, these are just some of the kinds of stories. So all these kinds of people, it was like a flowering again of all these kinds of stuff. And also there's new indigenous manifestations of Russian spirituality. There's a new kind of native Slavic religion that's emerging, a kind of native pagan religion, going back to their pre-Christian roots um, in these Slavic gods and goddesses and so on. And then there's the whole Anastasia. I don't know if you heard about Anastasianism. There's this whole kind of new movement coming out of Russia based on, well, they're called the ringing cedars of Siberia. And it's a kind of tree that is supposed to have these kind of mystical spiritual properties. And is fundamentally, as a writer goes there, he meets this woman who knows all about this, and she initiates him into the religion or, you know, the ideas and all that. And then, you know, he's given the task to write books about it and spread the message. And they become immensely popular if what they say on the website is true. And apparently it's very popular in the States. So there's a resurgence of all these kinds of things that are, they're not, as should we say, they're not as left field as they still are in the West. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they still, I'm trying to think, you know, okay, I mean, I wrote a book about Trump and I'm not saying he's consciously involved in any kind of magical sorts of things, although he is a devotee of positive thinking, but I, I think in the background around him, this stuff's going on. But then you had Marion Williamson comes in and she was supposed to be kind of the, the white magic <laughs> political person and that's one person who was up for a while but you know from what i understand from what i read about what's happening in russia there's a lot of that stuff happening it's in the news a lot and it was like a witch's group that was pro-putin and doing these spells to feed all his enemies and things of that sort so again you know whether that's something i have no idea how much he takes it seriously although you know he's very much involved in the resurgence of the church there too and one thing i mentioned in this book and also in dark star rising you know the whole his incursions into Crimea and Ukraine, you know, 2014 or whatever, and carrying on, you know, there's good reason to believe these are part of this vision of trying to, in some way, create this kind of Eurasian world that I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And he, one reason he went, well, whether Ukraine is Russia or not, this is oral history. But Kiev, that's where it all starts. Right on. Yes. And you are right. These ideas do seem to be resurging all over the place. I interviewed Christopher McIntosh about a book called Beyond the North Wind, The Fall and Rise of the Mystic North, because these old pagan ideas, the old pagan gods, they're coming back in Iceland too. Like they're having a big resurgence of, of their old pagan ways too. There's, It's just kind of interesting how ideas propagate uh, around the world and seem to have a life of their own when we draw them down to uh, our level. Well, it's true. It's funny you should mention Christopher. I just got an email from him because hmm. he just read the book and was telling me that he enjoyed it and that he's working on a book about Russia as well. But I guess we're all, you know, going through a kind of identity crisis. I have this notion, I talk about it in Dark Star Rising, right? I call it trickle-down metaphysics. 
is basically that a little bit more than 100 years ago, philosopher Nietzsche is talking about the advent of nihilism, meaning the belief in nothing, or the recognition that all the beliefs we had hitherto are no longer tenable. And, you know, we, right. whether it's religion or, you know, even the notion of progress or even the notion of sort of science in the sense of science giving us the truth in some way. And when he first announces this, he says, well, if you know Zarathustra, he tries to tell the people and they have no interest. And he's saying, I don't write for today and I don't write for tomorrow, I write for the day after tomorrow. And it strikes me that we're kind of living on an everyday level what he was warning about back in the 1880s. And it gradually came down from these metaphysical heights and then it goes through different layers, layers of academia. The German philosopher Martin Heidegger sort of picks up on Nietzsche's idea. And he too sees a decline of the West. And he said, we, we made a wrong turn at Plato. And so we got to go back, back to Plato, back to these pre-Socratics. And he starts, he begins what became known as the deconstruction of sort of Western metaphysics. And then the next generation that actively called the deconstructionists, Jacques Derrida and others. And the whole aim was to take apart this whole Western logocentric kind of thing. But initially, this seems liberating and, you know, cause for celebration, but they don't have anything to put in its place. And so once the demolition work is over, you have to start, okay, what are we going to build here? And there's no central idea. And that's why there's a variety of different challenging ideas, you know. You have both a resurgence of paganism, archaic beliefs, and you have this futurism, this transhumanism, this whole idea that we're going to go beyond who we are in the human and we're all going to be sort of the bionic man at some point. You know, kids are going to buy a bionic arm 20 years from now and they'll, they'll be able to lift 500 pounds or something like that. So that's all happening at the same time. And again, this is, you could say, this is this protean, turbulent, possibly creative chaos that Hesse was talking about 100 years ago. It's not specifically Russian, but it's kind of taken over in a certain sense. And we're all looking around for an identity. Uh, what's the most uh, incendiary topic in politics today? Identity politics, generation identitaire. Who are we? Mm -hmm. You know, everyone wants to do that in different ways. And it isn't like we all wanted to be back in the 60s. We're all, you know, it's a small world after all. We're all like in a big Benetton ad, you know, we're, like used to be. We're all kind of... <laughs> arms on his shoulders and there's a white kid and a black kid and an Asian and whatever. It's not like that. It's everybody in their own little gang, basically, their own little group of people who they identify with, groups fighting against groups. It's what I call the war of all against all in Dark Star Rising. And, um, you know, we're still in the midst of that. I don't think we're going to come out of it anytime soon. But the dangerous thing in some ways is if someone does come around with a very strong idea of some kind of unity, that's going to be very attractive. And Putin is someone who's done that in Russia. Trump, I would say, is someone who's trying to or has done that in the States. And they're both doing it in the sense of trying to return to a former glory. It's make America great again. And this notion of, you know, Holy Russia. It got the name Holy Russia after the Napoleonic Wars, because Russia defeated Napoleon, just like Russia defeated the Nazis in the end of World War II. So it was like the savior. <laughs> I mean, Russia, and in the Napoleonic Wars, Russia was the savior of the West. It was the savior of all the monarchies. It was the savior of, you know, all of that. It stopped this kind of revolutionary rot. And it maintained this character of, you know, the gendarme of Europe. It maintained order, you know, up until the late century when it started to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Man, you know a lot about a lot. And... Before we run out of time, the last little section I wanted to kind of save some time for 
is the Soviet psi research. You do touch on it briefly, noting that it's been written at length elsewhere. So you just kind of breeze through it. But I don't get an opportunity to talk to guests about it very often because I don't know many people who are knowledgeable about it. But what's interesting to me is comparing and contrasting the Russian and American mindsets and approaches to things in the context of their psi research. How would you say their explorations of consciousness in the Soviet Union compared to the MKUltra stuff? Because they seemed far less obsessed with control and weaponizing the research. It's there a little bit, but they also seem to have that spirit of how can we learn about elevation of consciousness or elevation of man through these studies? I mean, is that the sense that you get? Well, as I said, I think there's an underlying interest or openness or propensity for these sorts of things in the Russian soul or psyche, more so than, say, in the West, who, especially in America, which is kind of like what was West about Europe, even more West, obviously, uh, geographically. But I think, yeah, in the West, it was sort of like, okay, is this something that we can actually use? Is there a practical value to this? And I think often when they discover, oh, yeah, it's interesting, it's all that, but we can't really weaponize it, just like they couldn't really weaponize LSD because it was unpredictable. You couldn't predict how someone was going to respond to it. So as far as I understand, you know, they checked it out, they tried it, they, you know, introduced it to all the hippies, and then, you know, they dropped it as a particular thing. I just think in what I understand, you know, uh, again, you know, this is during the Soviet Union, but it's the Russians that they had more of a kind of openness to it. And, I mean, there's things that I didn't even know about. I mean, going back to the early period of the Soviet Union, people like Maxim Gorky, who was like the great sort of writer from the early Soviet period, he's sort of like a Jack London kind of a Russia. He wrote, you know, lots of stories about different walks of life and that sort of thing. But he was deeply, deeply interested in what we would call mental science or you know, the ability of the mind to be able to create reality. And he tried to get people like Stalin interested in it. He worked with different scientists and philosophers who were working on it in different ways in Russia and too. And this was supposed to be a way in order to spread the message. So it had a practical application, but the application wasn't necessarily initially to weaponize it in some way. It was able to, again, we think of it as kind of mind control, but these are people who were idealists initially, so they did really believe, they really did believe in the values that the Bolshevik Revolution was supposed to be about. In the early days, you could understand that, because there was a wonderful euphoria and ecstasy about the possibility of this. Later, that died out. And then there's the wonderful, you know, sort of story about these two characters, Alexander Barchenko and Gleb Bucky, who were <laughs> involved in this whole attempt to introduce variety of different esoteric practices and disciplines and philosophies and parapsychology and also sort of the, the search for Shambhala. Right. Baki himself was head of security in the early days. And in the early days of the Bolshevik Revolution, just like during the French Revolution, there was the terror where people were getting assassinated left and right and murdered and just locked up and killed, this kind of purge. And initially, he felt, okay, this was necessary in order to, you know, create the new age. But he became sickened with it. 
And he came into contact with this fellow, Varchenko, who was a student of a variety of different esoteric practices. And he's also one of these people who are very interested in what was happening in the East and Tibet. And long story short, they both came together to try and work to get funding for them to journey to Tibet because they wanted to bring back knowledge of these spiritual practices through which they were able to actually imbue the revolution with the true values that had got lost in this murderous purge and all that kind of thing. They wanted to actually imbue this notion of, you know, brotherhood of man and communality and compassion and peace and all that. But also they believe that hidden away in the Tibetan monasteries was this kind of super science, this kind of variety of different energies and powers and forces that were not known to the West yet, but the Tibetan yogis knew them. And it's, it's something that if you know T. Lamsung Rampa, he wrote The Third Eye, and you know, he, he was the plumber from Devon here, but he's the guy who wrote all these books about his past life in Tibet, and they were very popular in the 50s. But he has a book called The Cave of the Ancients, and this is about all the super science that's supposed to be hidden away in a cave in Tibet somewhere, and it's kept secret and unavailable until such time as you know, humanity has matured and that it could use these powers uh, for good. I don't know if we got, quite got there yet. <laughs> but these guys are really interested in that. And they tried to get the funding. They tried to get the influence to be able to do it. They failed. In the end, they both fell victim to Solomon's purges. And it carries on until, as you say, it carries on until the 60s and the 70s. I talked about the de-Stalinization um, after Stalin's death and the Khrushchev thaw. And you have all this kind of stuff that, again, becomes very, very available and open. And so I think there's an underlying interest in this sort of thing that isn't quite the same as in the West. We'll look into it and see if we can use it for some purpose. But if that isn't immediately made clear, then we kind of move on, where I think there's more of a general kind of fundamental sympathy with it there. And that makes it just kind of part of the whole culture. Mm. Well said. And you must be reading my mind because I definitely wanted to bring up the Shambhala pilgrimage plan. But I was like, it's been almost two hours. I can't bring that up in the last two minutes. But you slid it in there anyway. So. Good stuff. I'm always interested in that kind of thing. And there's just so much great content in this latest book. And you got 20 others to come over when people are done with this one. <laughs> and I am envious of your work ethic. But before we go, is there anything else to leave the people with? Your website, your social media stuff? Where should they follow up if they want more? Well, I'm on Twitter, on Facebook. And I have my own little blog. It's all lowercase, one word, Gary Lockman, G-A-R-Y-L-A-C-H-M-A-N dot C-O dot U-K. And, you know, you can check out my posts and you can leave a message for me there if you want. And yeah, what can I say? It's been nothing but a pleasure. And thank you so much for devoting so much time to talking about this. Oh, for sure. Very easy to do. It's been a wild ride. And I learned so much from this book. You're a wealth of information. Thanks for taking the time and keep doing what you do. My pleasure. Oh, oh, it's magic, people. Gary Lockman, the man, the myth, the legend, been on my list for a long, long time, and I'm glad we could finally make it happen. He's written so many interesting books, and I'm not sure Holy Russia would have been my first choice just by looking at it. Russia's very politicized right now. People have Russiagate fatigue. But once I really got into the book, I realized just how many figures in it are people we talk about all the time, particularly in occult philosophy that came from Russia, 
or more specifically, that Silver Age. So I'm very thankful to have actually read it. It's sad, really, that these sorts of eras are so fragile, and bloody revolutions and times of turmoil and authoritarian leadership and top-down censorship, it can just stuff it all right back in the box for decades. You could say there are some real parallels to our times today because this interview comes right on the heels of a show with Joseph Farrell that was removed from YouTube. Of course, I think we're pretty far from the idea of book burning in the modern world, but in the digital landscape, we are letting this kind of thing happen. As Joseph Farrell said, why do you think they call it Kindle? But really, over just the last six months, we've all gotten several lessons in just how quickly society can change, and when we see these warning signs, we gotta start fighting back before they have all the momentum. Obviously, we are seeing that now. Another thing I like about an author with occult context is that they sometimes biographize ideas like they are actually alive, tracking their potency and everything in a way that is pretty similar to chronicling someone's life. It's very cool. And we didn't save much time for the connection between art and that spiritual perspective that art should inspire you and bring you closer to the divine. Obviously, Russia isn't the only country that went through a period where that was the dominant idea. But as my own worldview has shifted over the course of this show, I see the value in that type of thinking and how art really can devolve when that spiritual component of society is missing. Just think about the divergent paths of art's purpose being for entertainment versus inspiration. It's a huge difference. But if you notice, entertainment folds into inspiration. With inspiration, you get both. With entertainment, you just get the shallow screensaver for your eyes and ears, which is basically what American entertainment is in general. When the focus is just on being entertained, bright lights, bright colors, you lose that mental stimulation and you end up with Fly Like a G6 and Cardi B rather than a ladder to the astral realm built out of piano keys. So yeah, I wish our times had more depth, but when you work it backwards, it does all seem to come from the worldview that a culture has. We see no point in that kind of art because the dominant paradigm thinks that consciousness is an illusion of the brain and that there is no spiritual bridge to build. I know we bring it back to this kind of thing so often, but it's because so many roads do lead back to, well, what is your fundamental worldview? Your personal metaphysics, as Gordon might say. And you do get to choose it. Obviously, you can't control the whole culture, but you can develop your own process for navigating it in your own way. That should be obvious, but sometimes it's good to have a reminder that if we don't vibe with the time and place we're in, it's important to not give it too much credit and just create your own. So great stuff from Gary today. A much needed mental break from the relentless news cycle. Don't get me wrong. I support the protests. I think a lot of these concerns have been boiling up for a long time and addressing them is well overdue. My wife went out and brought them water, actually. But that doesn't mean that right after the coronavirus thing, we aren't fatigued by the complete domination of every conversation with these things. 
You know, those protests, they did just kind of pop up overnight, and I'm lucky I had that show with Dr. Farrell because we could talk about it. If you remember, I mentioned that the editor was working on a show during that time, and this is that show, which explains why we didn't talk about it, actually. But at the same time, it's nice to talk about something else because there's no shortage of conversations being had about the protests and everything related to them. But moving on, in higher side news, I guess my week off got pushed back a bit. I had a friend coming out to stay, but his flight got canceled, and his new flight is a few weeks down the road. So, back in the office for me. For those asking, our joint session is going to be on the 25th again this month. The usual bat time, usual bat channel. Sign up for Plus if you want to catch the previous joint sessions or the second hour of all these here interviews. Today with Gary in the second hour. We talked about the life and ideas of Rudolf Steiner. We talked about Gary's kids' Waldorf experience, tapping into the Akashic Record, prophetic dreams, mystics and magicians that have hobnobbed with the Russian ruling class. You know, I'm interested in that kind of stuff. And we talked about a name I'm sure a lot of people have heard, but maybe haven't dove into all that much, and that's Rasputin. So a lot of stuff I loved. I hope you agree. TheHiresideChats.com. And with that, I'm getting out of here. Do check out Gary's seriously awesome catalog of books. Stay safe out there. Keep your sanity. And I'll see you next time. Serenity now, good people. I've done my part. Your move, culture shapers, clamp down creators, and suppressors of ideas. Your fucking
can't stay. 